What if my language is no awful keen on being Scotland's? What if most folk that speak it do not think of it as a proper language, but just the way we speak? Yeah, I heard the story of what's been going on within the deaf community and I came out of that meeting and I sat in my car and I bawled. I was devastated and I was more devastated because I was so ignorant to the bigger picture. For me, like especially at college, it wasn't to be celebrated. It was like, if you speak with that accent, you won't work as an actor. There's no jobs, like, you know, if you sound too working class. And I was actually told to sort of get rid of my accent. How can we make sure all members of the audience are participating or how can we make sure all members of the audience are engaged on an equal level. This is the Future Culture Podcast. In 2021, the Culture Collective programme was created and established a network of 26 participatory arts projects, shaped by local communities alongside artists and creative organisations, funded by Creative Scotland. Since then, they've embarked upon an event series entitled Starting Points that explored pertinent themes to community-based arts projects within the network. This podcast will explore what comes next. What does the future hold for creatives and their importance for communities across Scotland as we go forward? In each Future Culture episode, we will consider different themes which mirror that of our initial Starting Points events. In this episode, Broadcast, we focus on Scotland's languages. This week, we explore ideas around language and its signifiers, the importance of recognising BSL or British Sign Language as a first language, and the use of the arts as its own language to communicate with communities and audiences. Future culture. Language is a form of communication that allows intercourse between multiple people or simply the ability to communicate in the first place. It can be any action in essence, but it may have particular limits placed within its meaning to protect what constitutes a proper, in inverted commas, language. Language itself may be defined as a structured system of communication used by humans, but there is more to even these definitions than meets the eye. And it sometimes may be forgotten that voice sounds, gestures or written symbols also act as language and communication. There are complexities between language and culture, and the two are interwoven. A certain language can point out a specific group of people, and when you interact with another language, it often means interacting with the culture that speaks that language too. Not accessing a culture's language directly may mean not understanding that very culture. This can sometimes lead to negative outcomes, including misunderstandings and even conflict. Growing up in a specific society inevitably means learning things like glances, gestures and varying tones and voice or other tools of communication in order to alter what we say and do. This may come from imitation and observation of those closest to us or within our immediate circles. But what about arts and culture? If we were perhaps to look at culture as a consequence of human interaction, then acts of communication are manifestations within specific communities. So when we apply that to the arts it can either create a wealth of new doors opening or a multitude of boundaries. Another consideration is the landscape in which we operate. Dialect is part of that landscape and can take on different nuances within language and can even be considered a language in itself. Scotland's regional dialects and languages have perhaps been pushed to one side because of the predominance of spoken English. But as the country and the world evolves, factors such as migration, disability, technology and importantly preservation of historic values come into play. This can drastically change the way we communicate with one another, but also how we present ourselves culturally. And the important thing to remember about the arts in this context is that it's a universal language and can help serve as a form of communication where sometimes language cannot. As part of one of the Culture Collective's Starting Points events on the subject of Scotland's languages, we were lucky enough to be joined by a panel who brought a wealth of experience, both within the arts and culturally, to the conversation, but also represented different areas of the language macrocosm. One of our guests was Harry Josephine Giles. 
Harry Josephine is an award-winning writer and performer from Orkney. Their science fiction verse novel Deep Wheel Orcadia was published by Picador in October 2021. In this clip, we hear them talk about their Orcadian languages spoken in Orkney, their studies in minority language literature, and the way they approach this overarching subject of language. The language I'm speaking new is Orcadian, the Orkney dialect, and it's the language of me islands. It's a dialect of Scots with guy-strong influences for Old Norse. About half the folk at home speak it as a first language. That's 10,000 folk. And just about everybody in the islands understands it. That's the strongest density of Scots anywhere, along with Shetland and the Doric and Aberdeenshire. In Orkney, we don't fairly think of it as a dialect of Scots, but just its own thing. Linguistically, it is a dialect of Scots, but for whatever reason, history or culture or politics, Orkney has always had in itself a pet for Scotland. That marks a bit of a fangle or a phrase like Scotland's languages. What if my language is no awful keen on being Scotland's? <laughs> what if most folk that speak it do not think of it as a proper language, but just the way we speak? I'm getting a PhD in minority language literature, and one of the things I researched was who national languages in Europe has always been mad through empire, that standard language is a tool of colonisation, and languages like English or French is always mad by centralised power to exclude the periphery. Do we want Scots to try and do the same thing? Or no? Is it another way of thinking about language? No is one fix-it thing, but a spectrum of ways of speaking that's all deserving of support. Yin's the question I'm bringing the day. Whatever poor does, there's I folk that'll do their own thing with words and mark their own thran poor that way. The truth is that most folk are bilingual in one sense or another, or maybe more accurately, I think most folk engage in code switching, that most folk, even if they say they only speak one language, will have multiple registers of that language that they use in different places. Um, one version of it that they speak with their friends, one version of it that they use at work, one version of it that they use in their poetry or whatever. And we, we switch quite naturally between these codes. And for folk that have different language communities, whether that's Scots and English or any other kind of set of language communities that coexist, sometimes together, sometimes in conflict, that code switching can become very pronounced. And nationality or language community is one of the ways that that's pronounced. Um, class is another major way that that's pronounced. Um, with Scots especially, Scots is a, is a language that is often marked now in the 21st century as either working class or rural. It's not thought of truly that often as a national language that everybody in the nation speaks. When, when folk open their mouth and speak Scots, 
because of war, the strong language communities of Scotland are. And that means that when you speak it, poor relations are there in your mouth as you're speaking. And we're all conscious of that. We deploy these poor relations. We use words and languages and codes to communicate to each other what our social positions are and, and what, why we think about each other. Here, Josie introduces herself and her relationship to our theme of language in Arcadian. She raises the provocation that perhaps Arcadian and the folk that speak it do not necessarily want it to be recognised as a language in itself and therefore be subsumed into a wider context of Scotland's languages, preferring instead to view the words and their pronunciation as simply the why we speak. She goes on to describe standard language as a tool of colonisation, inherently involved in much larger power relations. Another of our speakers at the original broadcast event was Arshtra Donald, Gaelic artist-in-residence at Highland Culture Collective. You might remember Arshtra also spoke during the Amplify podcast on minoritised voices. In this next clip, Arshtra talks about how language is received by the listener and offers perhaps a slightly differing opinion on the impacts of the standardisation of language. I think it's constantly shifting. Yeah, as Jamie said, when I went to school I had no English but I very quickly had to learn English or I was going to get left behind. So I think at least I didn't get the belt, not for speaking Gaelic anyway. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, so, I mean, I think now, you know, we have Gaelic medium units throughout Scotland. In Glasgow, we have three primary schools feeding into the secondary school. Uh, and overall, throughout Scotland, there's I get quite a demand for Gaelic education. I think the worry is there won't be enough teachers. So, and I think, and uh, the Gaelic, the language itself has evolved as well to more, not what you'd call an RP, I guess, but more of a kind of standardised um, kind of way of speaking. Uh, for example, um, where I come from, Tyree, we use quite a lot of dialectual difference compared to the Isle of Lewis and different places. So I think that Gaelic's been standardised in schools now, so it's almost all the young people learn the same kind of one, one for fit for all. So, although Arshtra sees the evolution of Gaelic speaking becoming more standardised as a result of education as generally a good thing, he does agree on the importance of keeping the richness of the language alive by introducing different words and dialectical differences during the course of his work. It's why cultural investment is vital to legacies like these and enabling minority languages to thrive. This therefore leads us on to the first of two provocations in this section. The first being, Josie spoke about the standardisation of language as being a tool of colonisation. But how can we increase the power of minoritised languages culturally? Another panellist we were lucky enough to have at the event was Gazi Hussain. Poet and Art27 Scotland Artist-in-Residence, Art27 at Southside, is a partnership project between Art27, Southside Community Centre and the City of Edinburgh Council. They aim to employ artists as the catalyst for the reactivation of a traditional community centre, transforming the Southside Community Centre in Edinburgh into a vibrant cultural hub which is relevant, inclusive, reflective and driven by everyone including the many ethnically diverse communities in its neighbourhood. You may recall we heard from Gazi's fellow Art27 colleagues Yuki Huang and Asha Trividi in episode 3 of this podcast entitled Amplify. Gazi, a former Palestinian refugee who fled Syria and was given leave to stay in the UK, is also a teacher who has taught Arabic poetry and calligraphy for many years. He studied philosophy and Arabic grammar and went on to teach a range of different age groups and abilities in schools and universities. Let's hear from Gazi now on some of his thoughts surrounding language. Is that the language for any person is like the identity of the person because 
If I'm in the street, I hear somebody speaking Scottish or Gaelic, I say he's Scottish. I identify that person. And they say your tongue is your address. If I hear Glaswegian, he's from Glasgow. I, he's a Scottish from Glasgow. Then, and that's our words is like our mirror. So reflecting our culture, our education, our politics, our morality as well. But my experience, and in, as a, <laughs> you know, when as a person who, had, um, my English used to be very, 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 very bad. Nowadays, is very bad. Just, <laughs> you, know, you know. And when I is my experience, I'm going to speak about my experience because we speaking about language, and language is very important. So my experience here is uh, my problem used to be because I don't talk. I'm afraid to talk. That's half of my problem. The other half of the problem, when I talk, because I say things different than what I meant to say, and people misunderstand. And that misunderstanding between me and the other person is make a distance, distance of misunderstanding. And that distance is very difficult to cross it. because people will accuse you you are stupid because you don't understand. And that is cruel. Yes, I know is stupidity is a talent of misunderstanding, but I'm not a stupid. Gazi's comments on the fact that your tongue is your address and also how words can identify someone's politics, culture, morality and education are on point. He brings back some of our earlier points on misunderstanding and a further thought-provoking subject about how people can be thought of or called stupid if they don't understand something. But this is someone who is a teacher for many years and continues to teach. Whilst this is a far bigger subject for this podcast and how we can sometimes make gross assumptions about people, this man simply sought refuge in another country and was attempted to communicate in order to live his life. And similar to Harry Josephine and many others within the arts industries, Gazi has used his craft not only to keep his heritage and identity alive, but also to educate others. His cultural project, Poetry for Survival, is about learning how to write Arabic poetry in an inclusive environment. This gives an opportunity for all Arabic speakers to develop their poetry skills. And in their words, it covers how to express your feelings and experiences to make your poetry into a weapon, because poetry is a way to resist, a way to survive. Life is a word, learn it well. Freedom is a word, use it wisely. This statement in itself serves as a reminder of how powerful language can be. And it's thanks to artists like Gazi, Harry Josephine and countless others who embody their roots in this manner, creating numerous spaces, pieces of art, projects and even movements in order to keep these themes alive whilst also nodding to the future. They challenge the dominant narrative and cast light on the many ways that we can discover new stories in the world. And all of this leads to our second provocation of this section. Based on these aforementioned points offered by Gazi on identifying someone through their language, can then this be looked at in a wider context? Are we influenced too much by dominant narratives within culture? And do we need to challenge this more? Future Culture. We are reintroduced to North Lanarkshire Culture Collective, who we first met in our last episode, Spotlight, which explored freelance creatives. The collective is working with four creative practitioners, delivering six projects locally, co-produced with individuals and groups most affected by COVID-19. 
Their project will work with and through Voluntary Action North Lanarkshire's six community anchor organisations who are embedded in existing communities and have a rich understanding of local needs and priorities, helping to reach those most affected by the pandemic. One of the Culture Collective networks in this area is project coordinator Siobhan McCauley. Siobhan has immersed herself in the community to identify those community members the project is serving when it comes to the real negative impact of the pandemic. One of these local groups identified was the deaf community in North Lanarkshire's Deaf Club. British Sign Language, also known as BSL, is a physical sign language used in the UK and the first or preferred language amongst the deaf community. BSL is a language in and of itself, which can be a common misconception for many in the hearing community. Siobhan was someone who discovered this herself. Let's hear her talk about her journey with the Deaf Club in their community and what she took forward from her experiences with them. I started to recognise the groups that had been most affected by COVID or had just no arts at all. And, you know, they'd never experienced somebody coming in and delivering arts workshops. When we started to recognise the groups that most needed it, it, one of the groups was North Lanarkshire's Deaf Club. Initially, I made contact with the Deaf Club and I thought, oh, I'm going to go in, I'm going to learn a wee bit of sign, I'm not going to be ignorant here. I was really proud of myself. Me and my son had worked on sign language for the past few days in prep for me getting into this meeting. I felt quite gallus about it as well because I could say, hello, good morning, my name's Siobhan. And I walked in, yeah, I heard the story of, of what's been going on within the deaf community. And I came out of that meeting and I sat in my car and I bawled. I was devastated. And I was more devastated because I was so ignorant to the bigger picture. I just thought, why did I not think of that? You know, why do we not think of that? And why was that never discussed during COVID? A lot of young people, because of face masks, aren't learning to lip read. They just felt missed out. They they didn't feel relevant. Communication was non-existent because Zoom freezes if your internet's not good. The sign wasn't able to be put across in Zoom. Now, for this particular group, North Lanarkshire, they're the only youth group in the whole of Scotland. So the only deaf youth group in the whole of Scotland. So young people travel for miles, I think as far as Aberdeen, every second Friday to attend this group. It's a real shame that they never got the chance to do that. And as well, some families don't have sign capacity so the young people had no communication throughout lockdown throughout two lockdowns no communication at all and for that young person to have no social engagement it has a knock-on effect on their mental health it's now something that I'm passionate about is raising awareness of the mental health and the impact of young people especially within the deaf community the communication when I wasn't physically there with the deaf community was quite difficult there was an interpreter there at the time and 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 that took a while for me to get used to to start with but then when I stepped away from that setting I thought okay we got through that now I understand how it works that's okay I know what I'm doing here and then I would send an email a follow-up email and I wouldn't hear back and there was huge gaps and it was frustrating from my end because I was keen to make an impact but there was just continuous delays and and getting back to me And eventually, when I had set up another in-person meeting, I didn't realise that English isn't your first language. And I was like, of course it's not, because it's sign. Again, that was another blow in terms of like, 
why would I assume these things? You know, we do. I just did, and I think many people would just assume that oh, I'll write it down if you can't if you can't hear me. Don't worry, I'll write it down. And actually, that's not really going to make a difference. Um, I was keen to get taster workshops out straight away, and then get a date in the diary, and it just took its time. It was much much um, longer than what I had predicted. That was a real wake up call for me, and now my approach is different. I mentioned earlier in part one of this podcast that by not accessing a culture's language directly may mean not understanding that very culture. And that is why it was so important for Siobhan to have immersed herself within part of the deaf community in Lanarkshire. BSL is, as she touches on, not the visual equivalent of English. In fact, when BSL is used within the structure of spoken English, it's called sign-supported English, SSE, and not BSL. It's important to also mention here the role of the BSL interpreter. A sign language interpreter facilitates communication either between users of a sign language such as British Sign Language and users of a spoken language, or between users of two different sign languages. Interpreters will use their skill and knowledge of the two languages and their understanding of any cultural differences between those for whom they are interpreting to transfer a message from one language into another. British Sign Language is the official language of the deaf community in the UK. However, this doesn't mean that it's used by all deaf people in the UK, And Siobhan comments on this with the heartbreaking accounts of households not being able to communicate over lockdown due to not having sign capacity. And that can be for a plethora of reasons at no fault of parents or those within the home setting. The thought of not being able to communicate is startling. It can lead to frustration, disassociation. Gazi's previous point about misunderstandings, misopportunity, mistrust, low morale, and as Siobhan says, and his witness, impact on mental health. Everyone has the right to be able to communicate effectively. Everyone also has the right to have access to culture and the arts. But in order to make that accessible for all, the right communication has to be in place. Siobhan mentions Lanarkshire Deaf Club having the only youth group in Scotland. And this begs the question, why is this? Whilst the reasons may be more complex, one observation is that surely this has an impact not only on the previously discussed health and well-being of young people, but also their access to a greater cultural lived experience. Another person who is helping to create greater awareness and accessibility within the arts for deaf people is multidisciplinary queer artist and deaf performer Jamie Rear. Jamie was another of our Starting Points event panellists, along with Harry, Josephine and Gazzy, who we heard from earlier. Through a BSL interpreter, Jamie explains his upbringing, his career, his role in the arts community, but also the importance of BSL. I'm a BSL user. That's my first language. I come from a deaf family and we don't use English much. It wasn't until I went to school that we were taught in English and that's the way that the deaf community have been taught for a long time. They've been forced to not use signed language but to use an English spoken language or English written language. And when I was at home I would be using BSL but when I was at school I'd be using signed supported English and almost losing some of the rules of grammar that I'd learnt at home with the natural language development that I'd had there. Not just that, but then being forced to speak and taught to speak. Sometimes even being taught to speak French when really I wanted to be learning about the beautiful depths of BSL. In Scotland, there's the BSL Act and I'm so pleased that that's there and that the community has the BSL Act and that it has been... Um, you know, there is a, a plan to, to roll that out in schools more than what it currently is at the moment. I think there's such a huge um, need there, not just for BSL, but for the signed languages of France or Spain or other countries as well, and 
to keep the, the, the language relative to the person. Since graduating, I have started to um, and I started an explorative progress uh, pr- process in all different forms of art, um, as a performer, as a producer, as a creator. And I'm also a BSL consultant. So I work with theatres mostly. I am a bilingual person and I'm also part of the artist community. I feel that it's important that BSL is centred within our industry and that I want to be a huge part of that going forward because deaf people, BSL users in our community, find their motivation. And it's really important for them to be able to see themselves represented within the industry. For the language I use, being BSL, and feeling how much support that receives in comparison to hearing people who might want to work with me or people that are just focusing on their own work. To think, first of all, in general social settings, BSL is represented, but it's often represented through um, a hearing interpreter connecting us together in a kind of triangle, you know, as a deaf person with a hearing person and an interpreter. And it's always okay to ask, you know. I think that anybody that, that is sharing a space should feel they have the right to ask, what's the, what's the word for this? What's the sign for that? And any language should be open to being interrogated and shared. And should, we should always be welcoming to each other, no matter what language we use. It's okay also to forget the next day. <laughs> um, I think it's as long as you always maintain an open mind and not just an open mind to ask, but also to receive. Ask, but also to receive. Regardless of the communities that we're in, we're going to always have differences within our commu- you know, between our communities. And I think we find the common ground when we actually ask the questions of one another. Um, most of the time when I'm working, I'm working with hearing people. That's the majority of my working life since I've moved to Glasgow. And what, what I really appreciate is when the people that I'm working with actually start to understand the importance of having an interpreter there and not just trying to get by um, or of trying to communicate directly with me when an interpreter isn't available, you know, and working towards using an interpreter less. Um, I think that COVID seemed to give people the time and space to stop and think about what is required for accessibility. And I think that it's become better. I think there seems to be more understanding, more general understanding about access and equality to a space. One of the things that strikes so hard within Jamie's account is his comments on how he was forced to speak or learn French in other languages. These were being taught in school, but as a deaf person, BSL wasn't. As an intrinsic language within the UK and a language to improve not only accessibility but in the wider context to connect people within a country, it's staggering that this is not yet part of the curriculum and questions of the importance placed over BSL being a recognised language have to be asked. Should there be more freedom for people to select what language they want to learn? Should the government place more investment in this? The list goes on. BSL was recognised as a language by the UK government in 2003 
It's not mandatory in schools, and schools are free to teach if they choose to do so, but the uptake isn't there. Arguably, this would help not only deaf people, but hearing people to express themselves more freely. Why not even add it as an extracurriculum option? As Jamie mentions, there is the British Sign Language Scotland Act 2015, and this promotes the use of BSL in Scotland, primarily by requiring certain authorities to develop BSL plans that outline how they'll promote and raise awareness of the language. This indeed provides some hope. Jamie's bilingual role within the arts is essential, and this isn't just about him providing help on a consultancy basis, but by using his skills and talents within the arts combined with his BSL linguistics, he's able to educate on a far superior level. He has the ability to show that hearing creative practitioners may create cultural output on what they think deaf audiences may need or may enjoy. However, without that core understanding of being a deaf person, these assumptive projects can sometimes be lost. Therefore, his presence in these spaces is far-reaching, and we should now look at increasing these positions for others to do the same. The pandemic has had a devastating impact, as Siobhan spoke about. But as many have also said, it's highlighted the accessibility and communication gaps that need to be improved, which leads us on to our next provocation to take forward from this section. Jamie mentioned at the broadcast live event how the pandemic seemed to give people the time and space to stop and think about what is required for accessibility. But where do we take that next? And how can we see language evolving culturally? Future culture. We now journey to East Central Scotland and visit Glenrothes, Kirkcaldy and Leavenmouth. There we find Young Quines, a culture collective project steered by Scottish intersectional feminist theatre company Stellar Quines. In response to the impact that COVID-19 has had on communities and the creative sector, Young Quines will see the creation of four creative hubs across Fife. The hubs will provide free-to-access youth theatre for young women and non-binary people aged 14 to 21 years old and will put young people's voices at the heart of the work by offering a flexible programme that will be co-designed with the participants. Two people steering the project are Rachel Jane Morrison and Rachel Keeler. Rachel Jane is a theatre maker, director and community arts practitioner from Leavenmouth in Fife and Rachel hails from Leaven, has first-class honours in acting and is an actor, drama facilitator and creative practitioner. We touched on dialects in part one of this podcast with Harry Josephine but we're keen to explore this more. There are four main dialects within Scotland, being insular, northern, central and southern, but with them all come sub-dialects, ways of speaking with words, phrases or pronunciations which are only found in smaller areas within a main dialect. We know that as we venture from place to place in any country, there is a shift in the language, accent and expressions that filter through to life, including through culture. Based on this subject, we were keen to ask Rachel Jane, known as RJ, and Rachel, how they are using the arts as a language to communicate amongst themselves and with their audiences. In terms of this project anyway, we're still in the early stages of it. And I think what one of the challenges has been for us is like, how do we communicate with our audience when there's been such a lack of opportunities for so long in this area because of the pandemic as well it's hard to get into schools and other youth things because a lot of them still aren't happening so we've been thinking a lot about like how do we as as Stella Quines reach out to um, young women and non-binary people in Fife who don't even know really who Stella Quines are you know, because they're like a professional theatre company based in Edinburgh that maybe you would only hear about if you were studying higher drama or if your family had an interest in theatre. But if you don't know that this is for you, how how do we access that? And a lot of the conversations we've been having is about like what language we're using. Are we a drama group? Are we just a safe space for 
these people to come and meet and then we'll decide what we do with the time. And so we're still trying to figure that out, I think. I think we just first of all want to hold a space (laughs) and then second of all, kind of, because we want it to be led by the young people, almost use the language that they sort of create to then talk about what we're doing. But I suppose me and Rachel, are really aware that we've left Fife, gone to college and uni and whatever and we have a a language that we sort of can use as facilitators and people that have worked in the arts for a while now but that language doesn't necessarily translate to the young people that we actually want to reach out to so uh, we're finding it quite interesting it's like those young girls that we were from Fife stepping back into that sort of role and thinking about you know what would we have connected with and what just kind of sounds like theatre nonsense or that feels like it's not for that that we would have felt like wasn't for us at the time um so it's quite yeah it's quite nice and it's quite refreshing to go back and kind of look at where we came from and use that to our advantage I suppose. It's like what Rachel's saying is like there's this absolute kind of almost like transference of knowledge and language that we both use and you know anybody who works in the arts know that you you often wear many hats and you often have different roles and I think when it comes down to language and communication that's often a huge part of that you know like when I'm pitching to a board of funders my language and the way I speak is very different whether I'm with my brothers and we're chatting and we're watching the football, like it's, you know, that kind of language, you know, there's peaks and troughs of when you turn it on and turn it off, I guess. And I think what I used to struggle with when I was at uni in Glasgow, I used to very much get the whole, like, oh, you know for here. And I'd be like, oh, is it that? Oh, yes. You know, or I, like, I'd come home and then it'd be like, oh, you're, you're trying to be posh, you know, and it's like, how do you use that, one, to your advantage, but also how do you stay honest and authentic in that? And I think the arts actually enhance communication, like we are confidence, expression, sense of self, and kind of that sharing of knowledge. So I think what Rachel and I are both finding, like she said, you know, really refreshing is that we can be both of those things in this space. We can both be very articulate, very in-tune practitioners with styles and different models and methods of working but equally we can laugh about what's been in these five male with the group <laughs> so yeah and and that's probably like the first time that that's ever happened for me is that I'm not I'm not stepping into you know um Pfeiffer that works in the central belt and does drama or you know it's like both and and that's to be celebrated but actually for me like especially at college it wasn't to be celebrated it was like if you speak with that accent you won't work as an actor there's no jobs like you know if you sound too working class um and I was actually told to sort of get rid of my accent and so then it's like actually now I'm glad I held on to it because that is what connects me to the young people I'm trying to connect with now is that like I'm normal to them I'm not an outsider from the central belt coming to Fife trying to recruit you know someone that that these young people might see as like posh or from the arts and and other I'm just like normal because I'm from here and I speak with the same voice but actually what's ironic is 
a lot of my early career, I was trying to not be that because I was told that wouldn't fit in in the arts. And I think that's why we've got an issue here in Fife with actually connecting with the young people in the first place is because there's such a sense of like the arts isn't really for people here. And me and RJ are like kind of trying to batter that wall down. But it's been built so high and with the toughest cement, you know, and we're just two, two people that it's tough. We're trying to change the landscape. Rachel and RJ offer a really clear and honest explanation behind one of the passions fueling this whole project, and it's their own experience. It's been a common reason for a lot of practitioners across Culture Collective, and that's the desire to provide something better for current and future generations within their communities. We often hear phrases such as, I wish I had this when I was younger, or I wish this had been in place as it would have made things so much more easy for me. And recalling our second episode of this podcast that looked at health and well-being, this is all part of that conversation as well as these things impact how we live our lives more richly. Because, as RJ says, the arts enhance communication, confidence, expression and sense of self. People deserve all of these things. Rachel and RJ are also using language in different modes, not only the use of their dialect to reconnect with the people in their area, but also to grow the conversation surrounding the arts and to use the language that the young people are using to combine with their own disciplines and shape a programme for them. This in itself shows a true understanding of what needs to be introduced and again it's their lived experience driving this forward. Their desire to return to the communities where they were raised and those communities accepting them as natives with true intentions is a wonderful approach. Rachel's comments on being told she wouldn't get work based on her accent highlights exactly why they should be bringing this project to their area. If we start to introduce things more into communities and build those connections across the wider cultural landscape, then they become more accepted and part of our daily communication streams. The fact that dialect is often associated with class as well is something that we must address. Class and the arts should not enter this conversation as a negative, as everyone has the right to follow any path they desire. The stereotyping of accents, dialects and the way we speak, as Harry Josephine mentioned, is something to be challenged. We must be able to show people across all generations that opportunities are available to them, and judgment shouldn't be placed based on assumptions. And it's this strand that we are going to use for our final provocation of this podcast. When RJ and Rachel talk about studying their discipline and the negative comments they received on their accent, this begs the question, what ways can we further nurture regional dialects when it comes to the arts? And should we be placing more investment into culture in areas outside the central belt in order to encourage this nurturing? Future culture. At the end of every episode in this series, I like to have a debrief of the guests to discuss the themes raised each week with someone who is connected directly to the episode theme. This week, our guest is Tamiwa Folleron Shaw. Tamiwa is an Edinburgh-raised, Brussels-based writer, presenter, creative and digital content producer, currently studying an MA in cultural studies. Having written for the likes of The Herald and The National, she works with Fringe of Colour and previously was Black Ballad's regional editor for Scotland. She also presented the BBC Radio 4 documentary The Art of Now, Black and Creative in Scotland. Here I catch up in conversation with Tamiwa about the provocations in this episode and take a look at the future. Hey to me, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? <laughs> good, good. good. Yes. So we are revisiting in some respects the broadcast event, but also taking the conversation forward a little bit as well and interviewing um, folk from the network, uh, from the Culture Collective Network, to find out some of their thoughts and some of the subjects that came up in broadcast um, way back when in November in Hoik. But just to kind of pick up on some of the questions that came up as part of that event and kind of 
just see your thoughts and your thinking on it because I'm very aware that although you hosted the event you didn't really get much of an opportunity because you were asking the questions. I wanted to pick up on something that uh, Harry Josephine said around the standardization of language being a tool of colonization and I was wondering if you could maybe tell me some of your thoughts about how we might be able to increase the power of minoritized languages culturally. Yeah Harry Josephine spoke about this really well and articulated it kind of beautifully and it's like a big question but I feel all that any question about language in Scotland is going to be a big question almost this first step is that a social and cultural and like even political understanding of this language across Scotland and part of that starts with I think like Scottish history because so many people don't even know what are the minoritized languages within the country. And so how can we even give it power if we don't have that knowledge and understanding of the history of language in Scotland? It came to be that those language, some languages are only spoken in certain parts of the country or by a small number of people. Because I imagine, like I've not been to these communities like I've not been to Orkney I'm ashamed to say as a Scottish person that you go to Orkney and these languages are very much present right and it's it's very present and you can see it within culture there but it's this thing that happens right as you go down this as you get closer to the central belt that it becomes very standardized and almost like especially to speak of Edinburgh very almost like in some senses Scottish but also very like British or English just in terms of culture anyway yeah some of the stuff that Gazi said at the, at the original broadcast event I really liked I really liked that term where he, he he mentioned that your tongue is your address um, as a way of kind of like um, an, an identity and an association maybe even the language that you speak talks about kind of your background and your culture and education so just kind of moving on from that do you think we're maybe influenced too much by certain bodies within culture or do we need to challenge this more there was something that actually I think you talked about a little bit there around Edinburgh and I'm from Glasgow originally and actually um, a lot of people used to just say about Edinburgh that it's full of English people. Now, I wouldn't necessarily think it's full of English people. I think there's quite a lot of Scottish people in Edinburgh, but there's something about the accent and the language that they that they speak that makes them sound English. And I think that comes down to class as well, actually. So it's almost like a signifier of class. I just wonder, yeah, if, if the way we speak can sometimes be a signifier for other things and, and whether we can be challenging that. A hundred percent. It's not the same issue that you have in America. Okay, you will have it in America, in the US, but in a different way, I think. But Britain, the class system is so much part of like the identity of Britishness. You know, they just like almost come together. And within that, yeah, is accent and language. And I think definitely as someone who grew up who was like born and raised in Edinburgh you know I'm Nigerian my parents are Nigerian you know they learned English growing up they studied in English but in Nigeria and so I think like the way they spoke was very much similar to I don't know like the Queen's English almost you know and like my dad studied English literature he has a PhD in English literature. So he was very much on us in terms of how we speak and how we articulate ourselves. So I had that growing up and that was the home I came from. But I also went to a school, a secondary school more so, that was in a catchment area that was like very deprived and very 
wealthy at the same time. And I remember like a lot of my friends would be like, to me, what talks posh, you know, to me, what speaks a certain way. And like, (laughs) and they would sound very Scottish, but especially in that sense of how they had categorized me as posh because of my accent. That then means like, if you don't sound similar to me, you are poor, quote unquote, like, and that says where you're from. Or you're like othered in some way. Exactly. And the moment you open your mouth and you open your mouth and you speak, it almost doesn't even matter what you say, because based on your accent and like the the sound of the words, people have made a judgment. I feel like it's also like a signifier of social mobility in a sense, because sometimes like I'll speak to, so I'll have certain friends that are have grown up like incredibly wealthy and incredibly privileged. And then you meet their parents or they sound the same as like, I don't know, like the kind of accent you would expect. I'm trying not to stereotype you. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm trying to be so careful. Um, <laughs> they don't sound like me, perhaps. And you would almost expect them to do too because of how much money they have. It's like very limited thinking or dangerous thinking, but it is the reality of growing up in Scotland or living in Scotland that our accents say even in the ed- the difference between like an Edinburgh accent and a Glaswegian accent. To me, like retaining that accent or retaining your accent and not feeling pressured to have a more southern English accent or that kind of way is also your way of saying like this is where I come from these are the communities I'm part of it shows you you know yeah it's something to be proud of it's like part of culture right like I suppose also that kind of recognizably Scottish accent I mean it's something that I experienced um when I was growing up because my mum's English and I think I had quite an an, an, an English aka in Scotland posh accent when I was um when I was at primary school and then when I came to um secondary school just got that wiped out of me completely like and it was actually like t- ha- having a Scottish accent to, f- to fit in in a lot of ways but there is something kind of quite special I think around dialects and regional dialects as well so I just want to kind of pick up on this question this is something that came up with some of the interviews with Young Quines uh, part of Culture Collective is um should we kind of be nurturing regional dialects within the arts and and placing more investment potentially in places that are outside the central belt because I I suppose I mean Glaswegian's quite well known I suppose when it comes to when when it comes to the arts when it comes to being on stage and stuff you do mention like Edinburgh and the Edinburgh accent as well because I think that for me the true Edinburgh accent I suppose the working class Edinburgh accent is something that I think a lot of Glaswegians don't know I remember one like a friend of mine from Glasgow was visiting and was chatting to someone and he was like where's that person person from like why, why are they speaking like that and I'm like that's what the Edinburgh accent is yeah. that's what it is um, but it's just not that well yeah. known you know it feels like okay yes obviously we need to preserve these dialects and these accents like like how can we not and that's part of the job of culture I feel like it's as much as culture is very much looking forward I think and recreating and reimagining and just like being in the present is also preserving what we have in our histories in a way and keeping those alive and coming back to them. Scotland is a small country. It's not this huge country. It's small and it's sweet and there's not that many people. And so to constantly be putting investment 
into the central belt is great, but it's like not, let's not forget the other parts, right? And even to come back to that, the fact that, you know, we had the language and the broadcast event in the Scottish borders. Like, it's so important that we're having these conversations in different parts of the country because yes, it's small. Yes, there's not that many people, but that doesn't mean that there's not a wealth of like experiences and like voices and stories to be heard. And it's like money, right? And putting money and putting investment into these different communities, which is part of what Culture Collective's done, right? So that people can find their way to like keep these languages alive and express how they use them and how they feel about them in their daily life and bring like a conversation about them to kind of present or like contemporary Scotland. Cool. I suppose something else that I just really liked from the event was um, Jamie Rhea, the uh, deaf actor, was talking about um, his experience kind of growing up with BSL and also um, thinking about how the pandemic maybe gave people a bit of time and space to actually think about accessibility when it comes um, to a whole range of um, needs when it comes within uh, culture and audiences. And I also really liked what he was talking about, about how BSL is, is evolving uh, towards the end of the event, there was some discussion around binary language and Jamie was explaining how the sign for people, which used to be very kind of binary and kind of man-woman was the definition of, of people, has begun to expand in terms of uh, a BSL signing way. I'm I'm just interested to hear your thoughts about how you think that, that language might evolve, where we take it next, and how you might see yeah, language evolving culturally as well. Obviously, I don't have favourites and everybody on the panel, like everything they said was like, oh my gosh, amazing, wonderful. But I really felt like Jamie's contribution was so special and really was challenging the way I think and the way that I viewed language and that point about how with BSL you have this like freedom and like fluidity to it too. Or you have this freedom to it for it to be fluid, I should maybe say. And that is something that I don't think English always allows us. And we can definitely learn from that in the sense and also learn in terms of like how we live our lives and navigate the world from that fluidity. To I suppose like be in touch with what is going on in the world around you. One thing that happened during the pandemic was that people remembered accessibility or started to think more about it how we continue that is really important and also like how we continue that to make sure we're giving audiences the best experience you know like I've programmed events I've curated events like I have not thought with this mindset so often you're like oh as long as we have subtitles it's okay but actually it's like how can we make sure we're giving the entire audience, the best experience of whatever culture they are experiencing. You know, and I I worked with Fringe of Colour, I've worked with them for two years, and they made this huge effort. Fringe of Colour Films is like a online film festival that takes place in August online for Black people and people of colour. And Jess, the founder, made this like huge effort and commitment. I shouldn't even call it effort, right? Because it should just be how it is. But this commitment to make sure all our films were subtitled and had audio description. Okay, where, you know, it's like 
a festival based on donations and fundraising and so didn't have BSL but it's online so perhaps you could argue that it was okay I don't know very happy to be corrected on that but I think especially anything that's live why isn't there a BSL person there why aren't you giving that non-hearing members of the audience that same experience you know I mean you're kind of talking there about kind of like a benchmark as well and and it's something that's come up in our previous podcast episodes as well is around kind of grassroots practitioners and organizations actually leading the way often when it comes to accessibility as well yeah, so uh, comm- commitments, benchmarks. Yeah, just, it's just yeah. like making it the norm. And I think the other thing is, it's not going to be easy. Like, it's not going to be, e- well, I mean, some grassroots organisations would um, argue differently. But, like, I understand for us, you're changing the way you're working. There's this huge commitment, and we've seen this cultural shift. And the one we're in now is very much focused on audiences and participation and engagement those were like the buzzwords of 21st century culture right if we're thinking about these things then how can we make sure it's all like how can we make sure all members of the audience are participating or how can we make sure all members of the audience are engaged on an equal level that's what I want for Scottish culture because it is so possible Well, it's the end of another episode, but we do want to leave you with one big provocation courtesy of Tamiwa to take forward. And that is, when thinking about access, how can we make sure all members of the audience are participating or being engaged with on an equal level? In our next episode, Locate, we focus on Scotland's places. In the meantime, why not head over to our Miro board, an online space that's been created to invite you to join the conversation. Add your thoughts, insights, experiences and questions here, and we'll include your perspectives in our future conversations. You can find the link in the show notes to accompany this podcast or on the Culture Collective website. You can also view videos of the original Starting Points events there too. The Future Culture podcast is presented by me, Morvan Cunningham, produced and edited by Helena Rafai with music by Henhus. Culture Collective is funded by Scottish Government Emergency COVID-19 funds through Creative Scotland. <laughs>